there's this interesting stage of development the Buddha calls Nama Rupa, which is early in our development, before we have our adult experiences and our clingings and cravings. And Nama Rupa essentially is considered to be the stage where we have uh, personality development, Nama being all of the psychological core traits and Rupa being the physical traits, the way we hold our bodies, the way we move, etc. And to explain what is the, how Nama Rupa is formed, if you're a religious Buddhist, you will likely say that Nama Rupa is the sort of rote personality that comes from a previous life into your present life. I'm not a religious Buddhist. I'm a secular Buddhist, and I don't particularly include rebirth in my, uh, my understanding of the Dharma. Some people, when they try to explain Nama Rupa, they might point to the genetic traits that are passed from one uh, set of uh, a family lineage, your parents, to you. Um, I actually, in my heretical ways, uh, tend to think of Nama Rupa as those events, those important, important psychological experiences that happen in the first two years of life that, um, due to the way human beings develop, are after about age four completely forgotten, completely lost but their influences remain because they're stored in the unconscious parts of the brain. This is actually easier to understand than it sounds. When we are in our first few years of life, we connect with people entirely through nonverbal means, essentially through movements and emotions, facial expressions, tears, cries, gestures, etc. That's how the baby connects with the parent. And during those early years, almost all of the interactions are governed by your right hemisphere. Your left hemisphere doesn't actually come online uh, until it's, it really doesn't start uh, dominating consciousness uh, for several years later, around age four or five. And it's because of that great migration of consciousness from right to left that most of the experiences we have in our first few years of life are not memorable to us. We can't, through explicit memory, recall them. If you think you can clearly remember an event from your first two years, what it probably is is what's known as a screen memory. Um, somebody has told you something that's happened and you have constructed the audio-visual equivalent of what you believe it looked like and the experience was like. And those uh, memories can seem very real, but they're actually almost invariably construction. So, in these first few years, as the Buddha noted in Nama Rupa, uh, Nama Rupa means the formation of personality, and it includes the way we perceive the world, and the way our attention moves about, uh, but it doesn't in any way include our thinking content. So in those first two years of life, what we now know from developmental psychology, 
there's some very important experiences happening that will shape the rest of your, the way you interact with other people for the rest of your life. The human brain is a social brain, and we uh, manage our relationships not just through thought and language, but through our emotional states of being. And those emotional, the early emotional experiences that happen between us and caretakers are very, very structurally influential to the development of our personality. Uh, the four things that we want to see to have a healthy, I always smile because I didn't get a lot of these, so, but I'll just, so some of this is theoretical, but I got this list from the work of Heinz Kohut and all the uh, researchers uh, influenced by his work who were interested in what are the dynamics of infant-parent relationships that builds a healthy psychology. And essentially what we're looking for is one, a sense of security. The parent is, or one parent is reliably available. And if we don't get this, very interestingly enough, uh, interest, I think it's interesting, uh, people who don't get um, reliable security in early life have a high preponderance towards hoarding and food binging in adult life. Uh, I suspect this is because in hoarding objects or in binging on food, we're creating the sensation of, of being cared for. If I binge on food or if I collected a lot of stuff, it would make me feel as if there's other people out there taking care of me. So it's compensatory for an early experience in life where we didn't believe our earliest, most formative experiences didn't provide a sense of care. So we're, in binging and hoarding, we're trying to provide that for ourselves. Uh, empathetic mirroring is the second real core need, which is somebody who sees our emotions and mirrors them back. And that's really the core dialogue between uh, self and other. We all desperately want to be seen in the eyes of another and have our emotions be known. And if we don't get mirroring um, for certain sets of emotions, if our parents can tolerate happiness and compliance and uh, interest, but our anger or frustration is not uh, well received, then what will happen is in adult life we'll have trouble integrating those emotions into our self. We will have trouble understanding those feeling states in the body. We won't be even able to recognize sometimes our own anger and we'll immediately repress the feelings that our parents couldn't receive. Twinship is a sense of companionship, somebody there who joins us as we explore the world and that can be provided by a sibling, a peer, a teacher, or a parent. And then modeling is uh, somebody who shows us how to achieve goals in the world. Uh, people who don't get companionship or twinship very often wind up excessively self-sufficient, not reaching out for support or asking for help. And people who, don't, who didn't have a parent who modeled how to be successful and achieve projects uh, very often struggle in their own life to feel worthy and entitled to pursue goals in the world. So um, if you grew up with parents that were caring but didn't show you how to go about uh, pursuing something meaningful, you might have good emotion regulation but you still might feel 
a sense of overwhelm at the idea of pursuing your own goals. So all these early interactions create what's known as internal working models, which I would propose is just today's psychology way of saying what the Buddha said with Nama Rupa, the basic core uh, expectations and anticipations you have about other people. All of us walk around with some basic, uh, 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 some basic presets, uh, expectations and beliefs that we believe either the world will meet our needs and be supportive and like us or an expectation that people will be ultimately judgmental or unavailable or that we have to only look out for ourselves because nobody will be there for us. I'm sure that we've all at times uh, worked with people who come from far too healthy childhoods who just are so confident and so loved immediately at any given workplace and, and such a joy, lightness to be around. Very frustrating for me. Uh, <laughs> I have to tell you that I know many, many, many Buddhist teachers and I know many, many therapists and we, we have in common that very few of us came from this, that magical group of, of uh, core family structure known as secure, which according to every study I've seen should be about 45 to 50 percent of the population, but I just don't meet this 45 or 50 percent. They just aren't drifting through my life somehow. They, there's this Woody Allen movie that starts a Stardust Memory where he's on this train where everybody's a Russian peasant eating borscht and he looks over this other train where people are <coughs> drinking champagne and everybody's beautiful. <laughs> so I'm, I was fully born into the insecure train. Uh, so uh, the core internal working models decide whether we believe our emotions will be understood and whether or not we believe other people will comply with our goals, or whether we other people are naturally on our side, or whether we have to uh, whether we have to chase after love from even if it's unavailable, or whether intimacy and love is something that's engulfing and controlling and scary, and we want to stay away from it. All of those settings happen uh, very very early in life. Now, when there are certain emotions and uh, traumatic experiences that are deeply unpleasant because other, early on in life, they led to rejection or shaming or abandonment. Um, when we start to feel these emotions or re, uh, we start to have any kind of experience that activates those gestures, feelings, moods, emotions, uh, affects that were um, completely rejected, by caretakers, then what we will rely on is called defense mechanisms to repress those emotional states so that we don't get rejected again. And in adult life, we will continue to rely on defense mechanisms to push down our, you know, our anger or our fear or our sadness or our loneliness or our boredom or whatever moods and emotions we were taught early on by peers and parents and families leads to ridicule and abandonment, we will repress. And we'll also develop coping strategies 
to manage other people so that we don't experience those emotional states or those experiences again. Some common defense mechanisms are denial, denying obvious emotions in ourselves, intellectualization, where when we have an emotional experience, we try to figure it out or turn it into a narrative or try to enlist other people in our outrage as we turn the event into a story. Um, reaction formation is when we try to change one emotion that's natural and authentic into another emotion that we know other people will approve of. So for instance, if we, uh, as I've said, many women uh, uh, grow up because of our misogynist culture in family systems that shame and reject uh, aggression or anger or frustration, but encourage other compliant moods and emotions, if you've had those natural emotions essentially uh, dismissed, then when you start to feel them as in adult life, you might try to switch your anger into something that you believe will not be objectionable from, uh, by other people. You might try to, instead of feel or know that you're anger, angry and express it, uh, you might try to instead be very forg overly forgiving too quickly when somebody's been abusive or uh, unfriendly. I grew up with a father who was a pretty violent, domineering, Russian alcoholic guy, so uh, holding and feeling and expressing anger was never modeled for me in a skillful way. So when I started to feel my own anger as an adult, I'd immediately have to numb it through drugs and alcohol so that I wouldn't feel those emotional states. So I bring this up because over the course of life, those defense mechanisms and coping strategies like avoidance or lying to people to get by or exaggerating or constantly seeking attention, those are coping strategies. Um, our defense mechanisms and coping strategies can be so deeply embedded and hardwired that we begin to feel them as naturally as we feel our own emotions. When we start to feel our anger, we will immediately might switch it to compliant behaviors. Or when we feel sad, we might immediately switch it to anger or to avoidance or to hiding or to self-numbing through intellectualization. The strategies to essentially numb ourselves away or numb the, the feelings and emotions that we were trained not to feel can be very, very deeply ingrained. So what happens in our relationships is eventually because in romantic relationships and core friendships and work relationships, we are in very vulnerable situations, just like in our early childhood where we where having a parent reject us is terrifying, so we'll abandon and repress any emotion associated with rejection in romantic encounters or in adult uh, work situations or other core friendships. We are also inherit that fear of rejection and that willingness to activate defense mechanisms to present things that other people want to see rather than the true core feelings that are far more uh, spontaneous and far more indicative of our core real feelings. Uh, in my work, um, 
over the years, when I have, I rarely, rarely have met with couples, but the times that I have, I found that when cup, when couples start falling into uh, really dysfunctional relationships, it's because um, authentic feelings have been completely masked over with defense mechanisms and coping strategies to the point where the, neither person is really truly expressing authentic, real emotional states. They're just trying to get their point across who's right. They're trying to ar constantly argue, you know, who puts more effort in, who cleans up more often, who is, you know, more cooperative, who is the, the person that uh, doesn't put in the effort. They have a, each person comes in with a, this story which is constructed in the left hemisphere so that we don't feel those really vulnerable feelings that can be activated amidst relationship struggles like sadness or vulnerability or confusion or overwhelm or whatever emotion is being activated. People will then go into these defense mechanisms very often, you know, a, uh, a story and they want other people to agree with their story. And so this stalemate sets in. And um, a lot of the work in helping people move from damaging relationships to healthy relationships is learning how to essentially take the risk to disclose our true emotional states, not try to get other people to agree with our stories about what happened, but actually go beneath that entire layering to the um, what is beneath it, what lingers beneath all these stories, these views, these opinions, these statements. Uh, there's feelings, physical feelings, attentional feelings, uh, states of being in the body, in the breath, in the chest, in the belly, in the throat, in the face, etc. So, essentially what we need in adult life, in our relationships, is for them to provide the really core components that we didn't get very often in our formative years. Most important is to be with people who can attune when we do take the risk of being vulnerable. Attunement is not somebody who uh, gives us good ideas or advice or it's somebody who just listens and maintains eye contact and creates a safe container. It's um, unfortunately something that's not really taught in our schools. There's no classes in providing good companionship uh, and so very not very many of us know how to do it we feel when we're around people we love and care about and we see them taking the risk to be vulnerable about being hating their jobs or being really sad about a rejection or being disappointed that some project that they worked on didn't turn out so well we feel the need to cheer them up to say something that will make them feel buoyant and happy and optimistic. 
But that very need to change people's emotional states is actually, even though it can be done from the best intention, it's actually very harmful. What people most need is not somebody to cheer them up. We don't need clowns in our life. What we need are people that listen in a caring, spacious way that simply sits back and takes in. And we also need care and touch, that gentle connection that's nonverbal. Um, it's really important that people in our life who respond to our bids, the great uh, John Gottman, who did so much research on relationships, showed that um, every single time we try to get the attention of somebody who's important to us, um, unconsciously we are remembering and keeping track of whether or not they, they stop what they're doing and pay attention to us. And so even if you come home after a difficult, painful day, and you say to a loved one or to a friend or to a family member or to a roommate, you say, um, hey, look at this cat video. Or, hey, boy, I had the most horrible experience at work. Unconsciously, those bids for attention are essentially the same emotionally. You're trying to get attunement. You're trying to make a connection. And if somebody doesn't stop and turn towards you and says, oh, that's a fun cat video, or oh, what happened? Then emotionally, you are set, your dial towards isolation and lack of connection is set a little higher, and your emotional states, which are essentially uh, litmus tests for how well connected you feel to other people, your emotions will become more negative. If, on the other hand, you receive empathetic connection, not only does it regulate your emotions, but your emotional states in and of themselves become more and more buoyant. So it's through just expressing whatever we need to express and being connected that actually we start to feel better in life. This is why the Buddha again and again and again said that the core of spiritual practice is not in sitting alone on a cushion. It's in connecting with core reliable friends. Meditation is important in that it helps us create a safe container to feel those feelings, but until you seal the deal, as it were, and talk to somebody else and share those emotional states, you won't be able to have regulated or in any way feel that you can hold them in a, a manner that is um, not repressive, not avoidant. So what are the, finally, the Buddhist mindfulness tools that can help us uh, develop core relationships, friendships that are solid and also heal uh, those early attachment woundings that make us uh, fall again and again through what's called repetition compulsion into really strict patterns of, of finding people who are abandoning or not loving or not caring. How do, we, how do we essentially begin to reprogram the brain? How do we turn towards the right hemisphere which stores unconsciously those internal working models, what the Buddha called Nama Rupa, and begin to change those settings of distrust or self-sufficiency or suspicion or constantly 
self-disparagement or whatever. So here are a few mindfulness tools. The first is that it's really important to develop a process of connecting with people with body awareness. When we are with our loved ones, when we are connecting, when we are speaking, when we are, uh, especially in difficult conflictual conversations, to keep moving awareness away from the agenda, the point that we want to make, or the responses that we're planning to whatever they're saying, keep awareness in the body so that we become aware not of those defense mechanisms, but instead we start pulling attention to the core emotional material that we're so quick to abandon. It's only when we really connect, hold, and learn how to express those emotions that we can make really resonant, um, satisfying, uh, relational you know, alliances in our life. So really, if we also what we can do when we have body awareness is we can relax the body out of its state of armoring, which can make us so defensive. Uh, I've found that um, so many of the conflictual relationships that I had um, immediately dropped away when I started a, a really rigorous body awareness, uh, emotion awareness practice. And in being aware of the body, I would constantly extend the length of my out-breath, relax the shoulders, soften the belly, just create as much as a, a comfortable internal state that wasn't armored. And I found that very often, not very often, almost invariably, the mind follows where the body leads. Uh, a woman named Amy Cuddy, who's a social psychologist, did some amazing studies where she showed that you can literally change people's uh, entire behavioral uh, uh, performance by just changing the way they hold their bodies when they sit or when they stand. Uh, she, she's really big on the, the broadening stance of pulling back the shoulders, opening up the chest, and when you hear her talks, uh, she did an amazing study where she found that if people just spend two minutes keeping their shoulders open and their chest stretched in a kind of uh, confident body, that 25% of the stress hormones disappear. That's an enormous amount. In other words, we're far less prone to fight, flight, or freeze. We're far more willing to stay present and not be triggered or activated or flee from connection. So the second is uh, to pause. Always pause before responding. Uh, pausing, slowing down, forces us into a different state of awareness. As I noted in the talk, defense mechanisms are very, very fast, and those tendencies to swap or mask our true feelings with compliant behaviors. Being, Have you ever found yourself agreeing to something that you wish you didn't agree and as the thing comes up, you're like, oh, damn it. Why did I agree to go to that person's wedding? I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Why did my parents instill this needless compliance? Why am I here at this 
event. Why am I seeing this person's band play? <laughs> Part of becoming, uh, of uh, I found in my experience, as a spiritual person, is the ability to have boundaries and the ability to say no and not be, not feel that that implicit force to manage other people's feelings and make everybody happy around us to show ourselves that we're no longer children with parents that we have to appease but we're in fact adults who can say you know I can't go to that event or no I'm too busy I'm not I'm not I don't want to do that uh, but we only get to that place that we learn to pause so many of our uh, our compliant or social, overly socialized uh, behaviors that make us feel uh, connected in a false way in the short term, but deep down don't really feel authentic and don't really express our needs, are very fast. And I would propose furthermore that none of us has free will unless before we make any decision in our life of any importance, we have at least two possibilities in mind. If you only have one choice in your mind how to respond in any given situation, you have no free will. All you have is essentially <laughs> you are just going along with the first idea that your brain is tossed up and that's a little bit like voting in Russia. <laughs> or pretty soon voting in the US <laughs> so pause relax and feel into the body um, when we it's our time to talk try to before we in any way try to present our version of facts. Try to mirror the emotions that you hear beneath the speech acts of the person you're talking with. That doesn't mean you agree with the factual assertions. The truth is, is that um, people use facts really to just get their emotions across. You've been in conversations with people who say outlandish or over the top statements that just feel far too extreme, that seem, you know, wild generalizations that just don't match your experience of what's happened at all. And then afterwards you might think, well, why are they lying or why do they have such a completely contrasting version of what I experienced to be true? And this happens because people exaggerate their claims, the more we, they, they emotionally feel resistance. The more they see people's eyes drifting away, the more they feel somebody's body posture becoming standoffish, the more they see that they're struggling to get eye contact or attention and attunement, the more that they will gravitate towards making more and more extreme statements. You never, ever call me up, but I called you up yesterday. You never do! Well, of course, what's beneath that is essentially a feeling of disconnection and not being heard, not having one's needs being 
validated. So in my experience, people don't want really deeply their, uh, their views of what has happened validated. What people most want deep down inside is to have their emotions seen and acknowledged. People come to me all the time with, you know, stories about how horrible their exes are. People I do not know. I will never meet. And I just hear these stories of, you know, atrocities. And really, even if I said, you're right, he, that, he sounds like a real schmuck. There's no real feeling of relief in that. But if I say to them, I can really hear that you're hurt, you feel abandoned, that you feel a great pain of the disconnection, then there is a great visual sense of relief and release and connection. And in that, I'm not validating their views and opinions, nor am I disagreeing. I'm simply connecting with what lies beneath. Sometimes just the act of labeling their emotions is so helpful. So helpful. And then finally, I would say also a very important component is trust which is um, not going in steering a, a connection where we want it to go, but to go in and allow each interaction with somebody important to take on its own agenda. Steering is almost invariably left hemispheric. It's almost invariably not about connecting with people emotionally. Allowing, trusting, opening up to the flow of a connection very often some very important emotional content will surface over time. But that only happens when we don't try to steer the ship too strongly. So again, the core practices are feeling into the body, relaxing it if we're too armored, uh, pausing, uh, mirroring people's emotional states, and not having a strong agenda that we carry in, but feeling willing to, to go with the spontaneous direction like an Ouija board, not having a directive.